is Andy Wakefield, and this is the Andy Wakefield Podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before. Welcome to the Andy Wakefield Podcast, episode 50. My name is Lori Gregory. Good Lord, 50. (laughs) Halfway halfway to a century, we'll all be cricket players. (laughs) That is, of course, Jim Moody, Esquire. Noted public affairs attorney and, of course, Andy Wakefield, for whom the show is named. Andy, you've made it almost a year with your podcast. Are you feeling accomplished? Well, I, I, are we still, have we been thrown off anyway yet? I think iTunes dumped us around episode 14. It would be wrong if, you know, if we hadn't been censored in some way. I'd feel that people weren't paying attention. So that's <laughs> somebody, somebody famous said, it's more important to be judged by your enemies than who your friends are. <laughs> well, we should be very important then, right? I guess we are. My goodness, there's so much brewing, you guys. There's so much going on. So I, I, much I going to on. Share something with you that I was thinking about on the way back from the chiropractor, and I I haven't really thought it through. So here it goes. I'm just kind of off the top. But I there are two things that I read in the last day or so that kind of caught my imagination. The one is the emergence in the UK of a new strain of the coronavirus, a more more highly transmissible strain of the coronavirus that's led London, for example, to the sort of highest tier of lockdown and predicted doom and gloom for a very long time to come. The other is the life cycle of this epidemic or pandemic, and it is not that of a typical respiratory virus. It really isn't. With that, those a typical respiratory virus that's unconstrained, just, you know, comes along, um, does whatever it does in the population and disappears. It, it, it follows a very typical pattern of emergence, acceleration, peaking, deceleration, disappearance. And, and that's what it does. This hasn't done that at all. And I just want to share some thoughts with you because it's rather like it's potentially like antibiotic resistant bacteria that we have when antibiotics that are imperfect that do not achieve a total kill of the pathogenic bacteria that they're targeted against for a infection then there's the danger of them leading to the emergence of resistance. Let's say 1% of the bacteria survive because of the imperfect kill achieved by the antibiotic, whether that's because the patient wasn't compliant and didn't take them all, or the antibiotic simply wasn't up to scratch. That, that 1% then becomes the dominant strain. Those surviving bacteria become the dominant strain and emerge, and they are inherently resistant to a greater or lesser extent to the antibiotic. Now, it may be that what we have done in terms of lockdown, social distancing, masks, is create an imperfect situation where we haven't prevented the emergence and spread of the virus. SARS-CoV-2, what we've done is put 
because of the imperfect nature of us flattening the curve, if you like, but not controlling it, is that it's put a genetic selection pressure on the virus and allowed not only for a, an unusual pattern of epidemic or pandemic that has been protracted and yeah, has been very, very drawn out and is threatening to continue for much longer, at least if we are to believe what they're saying at the CDC, but also that that genetic selection pressure has allowed, facilitated the emergence of these new strains of virus, like the one that we're seeing in Europe, we're seeing in London, which are have different pathogenicity profile and are more easily spread. In other words, if you put genetic selection pressure on a virus by flattening the curve, dampening it down, constraining the natural transmission of the virus from one person to another, will you encourage the emergence of a more transmissible virus, one that succeeds because it overcomes the imperfect nature of the lockdown. I hope that makes sense. It's just kind of off the top there. But it, what I'm trying to say is that the lockdown itself, rather like imperfect antibiotic therapy, may have been made things a lot worse. That we have prolonged the pandemic and we have facilitated the emergence of resistant or different strains of the virus that have a different pathogenicity, a different transmissibility that would not have emerged if we'd simply allowed this infection to run its course in the population. Uh, Andy, uh, isn't, isn't there a, or can there be an inverse relationship between the uh, transmissibility and the severity of symptoms? In other words, a common cold very transmissible. You, you know, you get them all the time, but they're, the symptoms are mild to not even noticeable. Yeah, absolutely. And they predicted that for this virus, that what would happen as it became less pathogenic, less severe in the disease-causing capacity of the virus, is that it would also acquire greater transmissibility. And, and that was something that was discussed some time ago. And that may be what's happened. Now, the next question would be is, has the, are the strains that are emerging now in the UK and Europe, are they going to be resistant to the immunity induced by the vaccines that were targeted at a, against the original strains? And I don't know, and that will require, I presume, some kind of mutation in the spike protein or the mutation in the gene for the spike protein that leads to an immune response that is different, qualitatively, quantitatively different, that allows the virus to escape the vaccine-induced immunity. And I, I don't know the answer to that because um, it will require you know, someone who understands the spike protein biology very well to predict whether that's the case or not. Well, well, but wouldn't you expect the companies or the regulators to require the companies to be taking some convalescent plasma off their shelf 
and doing uh, neutralizing antibody tests on the new strains floating around. That's a, a very good point, Jim. And, and will they be doing that? I suspect they will. And I think what they'll, what we'll see, what we will likely see is the production of not one Moderna vaccine, for example, but ultimately three or four Moderna vaccines against different serotypes of the virus. And, and, uh, and you know, all of the problems that go with that. So we'll be looking at multiple vaccines, rather like the sort of polyvalent vaccines that we see against pneumococcus, we're going to be seeing a similar situation with these vaccines, if that's how it emerges. Maybe you can explain in lay terms, what is it that makes a virus, and, you know, anything from HIV on the one hand to measles or, or uh, a COVID-2, more or less infective? Let's look to the respiratory viruses. Some of them are very contagious, and some you've got to work at it to get it. Yes, it's a question of how efficiently and how effectively the virus binds to the host cell, the human cell, for example, accesses the, gets into the cell, and then replicates within that cell. So it's a combination of proteins. For example, measles has a fusion protein, a hemagglutinin protein, and a nuclear capsid protein, and those amongst the, its, its proteins. And those allow binding to the cell membrane, entry into the cell, replication within the cell. And it's the efficiency of those processes that make a virus more or less successful as a, a parasite. And, and that may explain population to population differences. Uh, Asians may have fewer susceptible proteins on the surface of their cell. They, these ACE2 proteins, they may have fewer, fewer available targets. So the same virus may infect in people in Taiwan less effectively as people in Northern Europe. You've been listening to the Andy Wakefield Podcast. To continue the conversation, go to 1986theact.com slash membership, where for $5 a month, you can subscribe and access the Andy Wakefield Podcast in its entirety and much more.